WCHD3 Detroit, KMPS HD3 Seattle, WBMX HD3 Boston, and on AOL Radio and Yahoo Launchcast. Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. Was a simple but meaningful code downloaded to one or more witnesses to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents of 1980? Who or what did the downloading? Could they be connected with other UFO incidents? Hello, and welcome to the 328th broadcast of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. And those puzzling questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. So this week, we continue our discussion of the Rendlesham case, going deeper into the issues of the quote-unquote binary code received from a landed craft in Rendlesham Forest. With us once again are witnesses Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and along with them is Gary Osborne, a British author, expert on the mysticism, and No, Gordy couldn't join us actually this evening. Uh, organizer of the Randallship Conference. Uh, last Something came up last minute, so we couldn't join us. Anyway, I thank you, Ben. Uh, if anyone needs further background, uh, we refer you once again to our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find free podcasts of last week's show, number 326, along with 16 hours of radio specials we have produced on the Rendlesham case. Uh, there is a separate link for those shows, and they're all free, of course. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we have done our duty to this case. We have to I've probably done more a radio or and or uh, not TV time, but more more than any other station. And we're really proud of that. These, these are great fellows and real heroes in our book. So, everyone, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Good to be here. Okay, so uh, Gordy is not with us, so we will just continue here as we would. And as I said uh, off the air, there, um, uh, Jim, if uh, for the five hundredth time in my career, if I could. Uh, uh, prevail upon you to talk about the binary code when you received it and how. Uh, we'll turn it over to Gary to try and explain it. Well, uh, it was done in contact uh, the night of the 26th, or the morning of the 26th, uh, by touching the craft, initiate some type of technology that uh, I just you know don't understand even today. Uh, and uh, I uh, seen ones and zeros flash in front of me, and um, it lasted for, I don't know if it was a few seconds or minutes, I can't really tell. And uh, anyway, I went home after the incident and uh, had trouble sleeping and stuff like that, couldn't sleep. Uh, it was just like, that's all I could see is these ones and zeros. And, you know, I got up, got a cup of coffee, I did things like that. And uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was actually scaring me quite a bit. And, uh, Anyway, I, I broke my notebook back open. And I looked at it, and I was trying to figure out if there's some clue in there from the you know the glyphs or something like that. And uh, I just felt compelled to write down the ones and zeros, and that's what I did. Okay, and uh, the glyphs being the uh, the symbols on the craft, written on the craft, right? Correct. That's and that's what I did touch uh, when yeah. it activated it. Huh. Okay, and you were of course a sergeant in the air force air force at the time, right? Yes, I was. Okay, very good. Okay, Gary, um, where, where are we going here? Well, you tell us. Well, yeah, thanks. I can relax now after last week's rush through. <laughs> no, to, sorry about that. Trying to get everything said before the end of the show. Um, <laughs> some, something I should clear up with you right now, Paul, is I'm, I'm not a UFO researcher, as stayed on your website. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry well, about that. 
That's all right. Well, not officially, and especially not in the same league as, say, Peter Robbins and Nick Pope, whose research work is also related with the Reynoldson case. Um, I suppose I'm more of a symbolist, I guess, in that for many years now, people have asked me to look at all kinds of things believed to contain encoding information. For example, certain symbolic features in art, sculpture and architecture for many periods in history, as well as encoded paintings and other things that have puzzled people for centuries. So um, I suppose I have an uncanny knack of being able to perceive the right interpretations most of the time, um, which is where Jim came in, and I think that's why I was recommended to Jim. Um, anyway, what's that noise? <laughs> um, we, we have a number of people on the link up here. It could be anything. Someone's no one's been abducted. Yeah, no one's been abducted. Then. I know. Uh, I know uh, Bill, Bill Burns always had, used to have his dog next to him when he do. And you hear all these really strange noises. But anyway, don't pay any attention to that. I don't think uh, the studio would, would let us know if there's a, a problem. And apparently, we're okay. So go ahead. Okay. All right. We're moving on. Um, last week, I gave a list of the seven locations derived from the seven coordinates given in the raw binary code data. Yeah. Could you repeat those, please? <laughs> yeah. Uh, first one is High Brazil from the first pages of the binary code. Um, an ancient city in Central America, a location in South America, um, Sedona, North America. In Arizona, Giz- yeah. Yeah, Giza in Egypt, an island in Greece, and a location in China. Okay, now, there's been some confusion surrounding the coordinates of High Brazil. But a more logical conclusion would be that the coordinates have been wrongly established by the placement of the decimal point, and that west might be east. If so, then this leads us to the location of Woodbridge, close to where the Rendlesham incident took place. Hmm. Now, now I would agree this seems the most likely location, as it is too much of a coincidence not to be. However, the binary code at these coordinates unequivocally give a W for West instead of an, of an E for East, which points to High Brazil. And I can tell you now that the location of High Brazil is vital and essential to the picture that emerges from these seven coordinates. It could be no other way. So High Brazil is definitely one of the seven coordinates. Okay. Okay, so without giving too much away at this stage, as it's really Jim and John's call to announce these findings uh, when they see fit. Yeah, we respect that. Yeah, yeah, I can honestly say that the information I've been able to extract from the coordinates found in the raw binary data is useful and is pointed to something specific. Okay. Uh, So something, an, an, an event... Or in another place, so that's specific. Yeah, a location. Yeah, oh, another, another location. location. Okay. Right. okay. okay. Um, now, looking at some of the discussions taking place about the codes, people are concerned that overall this inclusion of the binary code has perhaps damaged Jim Pennison's credibility and that it's all a deception to throw doubt on the witness testimonies and undermine and seriously invalidate the Reynoldsham incident as a genuine UFO event. But my answer is that this is, of course, possible, and we shouldn't be naive about the whole thing by taking these codes and accepting them at face value. Although I respect people's thoughts on this, the fact is I find myself in a unique and privileged position here in that having worked on them, I am privy to what the codes are telling us and what they appear to be pointing to. Um, So knowing what I know, I have observed people on various forums jumping to conclusions prematurely without knowing all the facts about the codes, especially what's been deciphered from the remaining pages of the notebook. I think that caution should always be applied, but that rejecting this aspect of the incident and or jumping to conclusions with only after facts is folly, 
because before a final and reasonable assessment can be made, people will first have to assimilate everything that's going to be finally announced and told by Jim and John, as well as also view and study what I and others have been able to interpret from the codes. Only then can we take it from there, and hopefully a more rational conclusion can finally be arrived at, however unrealistic or idealistic that might be. You know, the reason we sympathize with what you're saying so yeah. so so, so mm. deeply, Gary, is because in our work in the quote-unquote paranormal, which is actually quite normal, we run into this sort of thing because of the approach we take. I mean, forget spirits of the dead and all this below. I mean, what we run into is other people from other mm. places and times. Quite yeah. literally, and so so that's why th- this clicked with us. We don't have the problems other people have with this. We don't have the assumptions. I like to think that it has to be somebody from another planet, you know, and yeah. all the you know, and the whole line of of of, of almost theologically rigorous assumptions that that follow from that. So, but please go on. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've I've also personally been asked if I've ever considered that the codes are a fake that even if we accept Jim's claims, then nevertheless, and without his knowledge, the data may have been tampered with or planted at any time during the 30 years it's taken Jim to come forward with it. Um, I know Jim would strongly object to that, but these are the questions people are asking. And if this turns out to be the case, then surely I would have to be concerned with any emerging consensus opinion that I have been a victim of some kind of deliberate covert orchestration or operation devised by some human agency that has a specific, specific agenda. And that possibly my own reputation as a serious researcher is also at stake here. So, yes, I, I have and still continue to consider all those possibilities personally, as is only natural. But for the sake of clarity as regards my own position in this, I have to remain neutral and leave it to other researchers, investigative researchers and reporters better equipped than I am to look into this and hopefully arrive at some decisive conclusion as to the source of the codes. I mean, despite any views I might have as to the source of the codes... I simply have to keep to the facts of the events of my involvement as I experience them. That doesn't mean I am naive about the questions that are surely going to be asked. I mean, I can assure you that I've gone over every kind of scenario in my mind and every kind of question that would be asked since I began working on the codes. And um, personally, I have no wish to get embroiled in the politics of the Rendlesham incident, and that's why it's been easy for me to remain quiet for the duration of the 12 months I've been working on them. I'm only taking... um, Sorry, I'm only talking about them now because it was announced that I'll be presenting what I found at a conference. So this case is so emotionally charged now with everyone taking different sides or viewpoints with what they see and believe, all of which has only served to confuse the issue. I really don't want to be caught up in all that, and the truth is I really don't have to be. I find the results of the code interesting, actually fascinating, um, as the way in which it has been simply put together and in such a multi-leveled way is ingenious. But I'm not emotionally attached to what I've found. I'm not overly excited by it to the point of deluding myself, and I have no desire or wish to capitalise on any of it. If I was that way inclined, merely seeing it as an opportunity for personal gain, again, I could have gone public with it months ago. However, I have respected Jim Penniston's wishes to remain silent on it, and really it's his call to announce everything in public, if and when he pleases. I've merely found what I have found and will present it when ready, and then people can make of it what they will. Okay, well, that seems like a very sensible approach to me. What? Yeah. Uh, don't ask me what that is. Uh, we, when you have an issue of... Okay, we have two minutes left, but let, let, let me make this point. Yeah. 
you have Earth coordinates being uh, apparently presented here. Uh, one might point out that how would uh, an alien life form, a completely alien life form, know about that? Uh, perhaps from studying us, but I mean, it, it all. It, I must say, uh, it, without um, trying to become emotionally involved ourselves, that it does. Everything you say makes very, a lot of sense, Gary. What do you think, Ben? Yeah. I, I think it makes sense. Okay. Uh, now, now uh, I probably ought to ask you about that. Uh, okay, yeah. so is Gary the uh, expert who originally decoded the binary spring? Yeah, Jim, you referred to an expert at one point. Is, was that Gary or someone else? No, no, no. The person that uh, did the actual decipher with the um, with the codes uh, is a is an IT person, not the. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, someone knows binary. Sure. Okay. Like well, that. we're coming down to a break now. I don't have to interrupt anybody for once. Uh, thank you, gentlemen. I think we're off to a great start, and we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Hino on CBS New Sky Radio, NewSkyRadio dot com. For continuing our discussion of the binary code from the infamous Rendlesham case. I'll be right back. Stay with us. So what are you thankful for? The I'm Thankful Network explores the positive. Join host Sue Lundquist Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. Empowering women, empowering lives. The I'm Thankful Network on New Sky Radio. Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, the Dr. Pat Show is alive with a distinctive blend of interviews with a mix of uplifting and intelligent news, educational, and practical information. Get in the know. Following Dr. Pat, join host Laura Lee for Laura Lee's Spirit Salon. Contact your dearly departed spirit guides and angels to find answers, closure, guidance, insight, revelations, and prophecy regarding matters of the heart by contacting the other side through acclaimed medium Laura Lee. You are not alone. Batter up. Life's a game. Win. Call and get advice from today's top coaches that are here to help you win the game of life. The Coach Me Network is live starting at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. NewSkyRadio. NewSkyRadio.com. New Horizons. No Boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com.
Psychic Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we're back with our distinguished guests, Rendlesham Witnesses, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs, and also mysticism expert Gary Osborne. And Gary has been uh, explaining uh, something about the binary code, which makes sense to us. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there may be questions from the listeners in future shows, but it, it certainly seems to make sense right now. Uh, ben, so, do you have a question here? So, John and Jim, you teamed, uh, or you both teamed up to work on finding the meaning behind this code. Uh, when did you realize that there could be something behind it uh, besides random numbers? Well, I didn't know about it until I got a call from Prometheus uh, Pictures. They uh, they took it from the interview we were doing on in Phoenix about a month before, a couple weeks before, and uh, the producer called me up and says, "You know, these uh, this code or this these numbers say say something." And I said, "You got to be kidding me!" Well, exactly what I said, but <laughs> we're on the radio. <laughs> we're on the radio, right? Um, but I says, "You got to be kidding me!" And she goes, "No," she says, "I'm going to send it to you," and she says, "We're going to go through it." And I I, mean, I was speechless, you know. And I says, "Well, how how can that be?" You know? Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, John, I wanted to ask you, last year, you and I had a brief back and forth about certain Earth coordinates that I felt might possibly be significant based on work that uh, Ben and I uh, are doing, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the Rendlesham case. Um, on the surface, at least, I thought there seemed to maybe be something interesting going on. Um uh, because we're always finding rather jarring connections between this or that case, person, or event that outwardly have nothing to do with each other. So I thought we'd explore that with you. Um, anyway, I mentioned a latitude and a longitude in the U.S., and you almost immediately came back and asked if I meant Holy Trinity Church in that location. And I never had a chance to ask you, but do you remember how you settled on that site? Do you remember when? Do you remember this exchange? Oh, no, I remember it clearly. You, you wanted to know if that coordinates was one of our coordinates. Yeah, and and I told you it wasn't, but I was very interested in what what was in that area. Yes, I was. Oh, okay. And then we we had uh, some uh, theological discussions later on because that's that's my background. So that was very interesting. Anytime right. you want to continue that, you're we're very you're very welcome to. No, I I do. I really do. Yeah. I really I think I think that's some of the intrigue of all of this. And I I don't really believe that just because there's six coordinates that there couldn't be other sites in the world that tie into this also. And I believe Gary can kind of explain that too. Yeah. There's more than just six coordinates in the world that could oh, yeah. tie into yeah. everything. So it's just that, that that particular incident struck me because you kind of got a bingo with that one. That, uh, <laughs> even the fact that it's a Catholic church, naturally there's bingo involved, I'm sure somewhere, but, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> less than a mile from the site that I did have in mind. There it does really appear cool. to be on certain, certain areas, if there's certain activity, that there either could be churches or other things close to these areas, yes. Yeah. Well, before to we continue with the Sedona code, I did, I'm sorry? To include the Sedona area. Oh, sure. Okay. Well, Sedona has always been very special to the natives and everybody, really. I've been there myself. Right. It's quite remarkable. Uh, before we continue with the code thing, I did want to uh, sort of work in a question that I've always had for you fellows, uh, and I don't know if I've ever asked it. What has this the experience, the whole Rendlesham experience and what's happened since, what has this done to your, your personal belief systems? I know religious belief is a very personal question, but if so don't feel you have to answer that if you don't want to, but how has it changed your perspective on life or, or on, on God or on anything like that? 
All right, I guess you might not want to answer. No, I was just waiting for Jim to go first. <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you, uh, Jim, if you you know feel comfortable answering. Well, the uh, uh, I'm Catholic, and uh, uh, it hasn't changed nothing religious. Why I don't understand why that would change any of that. Oh, and frankly, neither do I. But you'd be surprised what it does to some people. Oh, I mean, if if, if you want to put it in any type of uh, result from it, I think I think it's made it. Uh, it's actually reinforced my religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm 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 quite comfortable with that. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. I, mean, I think everything that's happened, and we've had nothing like Randallship, but a lot of awfully weird things have happened in my life connected with this work and Ben's mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd really have to say the same thing. Uh, John, any thoughts on that? I believe my understanding um, of religion is evolving because of this incident. Okay. Well, one would, one would think it's always evolving. One is always learning in that sense. So, so I, I see what you mean, too. All right. Okay, fellas, uh, would... Um, okay, I'll go, Ben, did you want to what get into that? I don't know. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe a little bit. Okay, maybe a little bit later. Yeah, uh, would you be interested in hearing from others who feel they might have something to add on the code? I mean, I felt I might have, and there may be others who... Uh, in other words, you, you probably wouldn't think it reasonable to assume you're the only people who have ever this has ever happened to, that maybe others have received uh, a code in some way, in, in, in similar ways, and maybe would perhaps to combine with yours, or maybe, or do, you, do you feel yours is complete, or that others might be able to contribute to it? That's well, a good question for Gary. Yeah, I'd ask that to Gary, too, yeah. Um, I've been interested in some of the uh, crop circle uh, glyphs, you know, that oh, yeah. contain, that contain binary code. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, I, I haven't really come to any real decisive conclusion on that yet, but it's been interesting. Okay. But look, it's, it's something I wanted to I'll go on to, because John was kind of introducing this into it. Um, our, the six There seems to be other coordinates embedded in the six coordinates, if you know what I mean. I'll give you an example. Um, and this is an intriguing thing. It's something I'm still trying to get my head around. Um, like the other coordinates, the Giza coordinates consist of eight decimal places in both longitude and latitude, Right. All right. However, and don't ask me why I thought this either. Let's just say I have a lateral thinking mind. I found that embedded within the Giza coordinates are the coordinates for Svalbard in the Arctic, which is located north of mainland Europe, um, midway between mainland Norway and the North Pole. So we have two different locations, Giza and Svalbard, in one set of coordinates. Um, this is done by taking the last four decimal place numbers from each set of the Giza coordinates and using these as the main coordinates. We plot these into Google Earth or Google Maps and then we get the location of Svalbard. Right? Right. Uh, well, in the new book that I've just had published with Scott Crichton, um, we mention both these locations, Giza and Svalbard. And I must say that the connection between both wasn't common knowledge before the book was published. Okay. Um, anyway, anyway, in our book, Scott and I present what we call the recovery vaults theory. We put forward the theory that the pyramids of Giza in Egypt were perhaps used as recovery vaults in the event of a major global catastrophe, concerning perhaps the shift of the Earth's axis, which is why we find that the possible date of the catastrophe, which was seen as a recurring pattern, was also encoded in the Giza pyramid and the layout of the Giza monuments. Uh, so in the book, we present the analogy of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, which was built recently to preserve hundreds of species of seed and other valuable data 
in the event of a global catastrophe. So using the largest Great Giza pyramids as recovery vaults would mean that Egypt was able to reconstitute itself like the phoenix rising from the ashes of its former self mm-hmm. after, after a calamitous phase in which other civilizations in the Near East and beyond, such as the Akkadian Empire, had collapsed and vanished. All right, so what essentially Scott and I are saying that, is that rather than the largest pyramids at Giza being built to preserve the king, they, they instead they were built to preserve the kingdom. In other words, they acted as a kind of womb for the rebirth of the kingdom. And this means that not only was all kinds of knowledge encoded in these pyramids, along with the astronomical and geophysical knowledge we find encoded at Giza, associated with whatever natural catastrophe threatened the kingdom, but they were also recovery vaults to preserve everything about their culture, ensuring its birth or resurrection. All right, still following me? Yeah, it makes, makes sense, yeah. Okay, now this is where this gets really strange. Uh, it's strange that there should be a relationship between Giza and Svalbard in the same coordinates and that we had already mentioned both in our book, The Giza Prophecy. Now, you see, that's just one of the weird things about this code. Perhaps it's a coincidence, but it's a meaningful one, you know? So the other yeah. strange thing is, if we were to just use the four, first, sorry, the first four decimal places for the Giza coordinates, they would still pinpoint Giza. So why all the other decimal places? And this is, is what we're supposed to do, this being another aspect of the code. Well, I'm interested as to why both Giza and Svalbard turn up in the same coordinates given to Jim just over 31 years ago. And today it's a concern as to why it is now deemed necessary to build such a recovery vault. So, right, I'm going I'm to um, quote you something from Wikipedia about the Svalbard Global Seed Vault. And you can see how this kind of ties in. Right, quote. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault's mission is to provide a safety net against the accidental loss of diversity in traditional gene banks. While the popular press has emphasised its possible utility in the event of a major regional or global catastrophe, it will certainly be more frequently accessed when gene banks lose samples due to mismanagement, accident, equipment failures, funding cuts and natural disasters. Such events occur with some regularity in, in recent years, Some national gene banks have also been destroyed by war and civil strife. There are some 1,400 crop diversity collections around the world, but many are in politically unstable or environmentally threatened nations. Unquote. So it wouldn't surprise me if all kinds of genetic material has been preserved in its faults. And after reading this, I wondered if this had anything to do with the information that surfaced while Jim was under hypnosis in 1996. Yeah. Jim said that the intelligence associated with his and John's incident were time travellers, us from the future, and that they need and take human genes from people in our time to help with some genetic defect that they are experiencing in the future. Um, So it may appear tenuous to some, but is there a connection here? You know, my thoughts on finding this is that this is not a coincidence and, and that these coordinates relating to Svalbard have also been embedded in the Giza ones by design. I mean, as I said, both of those locations turn up in our book. Are in our book. We, we mentioned both of those places in our book. So, I mean, the world is a huge place, and these coordinates are just a point on a huge surface. It cannot be chance. It must mean something. And to think that both Giza and Svalbard um, are mentioned in our book makes it all the more extraordinary, especially within the context of global catastrophes and how the ancient Egyptians may have survived one such event. One could surmise that if the binary code and its messages are from the future, then at some point in our future and in the time travellers past, something might have happened to the Svalbard's seed vault 
that due to some catastrophe which it was built, it may have ironically been lost or buried, and that everything inside it may have, may not have survived or even been preserved. So if the Giza pyramids were used as similar recovery vaults, and this also means to preserve knowledge, then it's possible there are still unknown chambers inside the Great Pyramid, and if so, then what would we find in there? The fact that the Svalbard coordinates are found embedded within the Giza coordinates does appear to point to a connection here, possibly telling me that Scott and I are correcting, are correcting our hypothesis, but also that there is a connection with the human genes information that Jim Penniston recalled under hypnosis. That's astounding. I, I am afraid I'll have to break here. Uh, we, have a, we have a commercial break coming, but uh, it's, it's inspiring, it's stirring, and it's really quite overwhelming. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS New Sky Radio with our guests, uh, Gary Osborne, Jim Penniston, and John Burroughs on Stay With Us. More is yet to come. Take CBS Radio to Sky with you wherever you go. Be sure to download the Radio.com app today from your mobile marketplace. And when you really want to know more, 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 be sure to visit NewSkyRadio.com. Get in deep with exclusive articles and Sky News. Get your weekly horoscope and the inside scoop on host events. Radio.com and NewSkyRadio.com. Stay connected.
Geek Radio is now CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248-545-SOL. New SkyRadio.com. And welcome back to what we're finding, a rather mind-expanding discussion here with our good friends Jim Pennison, John Burroughs, witnesses to the Rendlesham uh, Affair of 1980, and... Uh, our good friend Gary Osborne, researcher uh, in mysticism and uh, the implications of many of the things that have happened here, who has been uh, talking about the binary code with with in a way that's really fascinating us. So, Gary, we just uh, yeah, just go right ahead and continue. Yeah, okay. Um, one of the first questions and one that keeps coming up often is why did Jim wait thirty years before coming forward with the binary code? So, I mean, Jim gives his own reasons that. Looking at the pages of ones and zeros, he was concerned about his own sanity, how people would view him, and more importantly, he felt he might lose his security job in the USAF. These are all natural reactions, but there are possible deeper reasons. If we accept Jim's claim that the binary code was transferred to his mind when he touched the unidentified craft in Middleton Forest on the 26th of December 1980, and that from some kind of photographic memory that kept flashing in his mind, he was able to write down the pages... Um, of these strings of binary code in his notebook the day after his encounter, then what has been contained all this time in his pages of raw binary code data could only really be analysed and deciphered at this time when we all have more powerful computers and the internet to quickly cross-reference information, and more importantly also because we would need Google Earth and specifically Google Maps to exist first so as to plot all the coordinates properly and extract the information that has been encoded simply and easily. But more importantly, it would be right to say that in that 30 years, an individual like myself or a group of people would have had a good length of time to then acquire the knowledge to be able to decipher and interpret the codes. Okay, so that then begs the question, why not plant this code after all this is in place and when people have acquired the right skills and knowledge to be able to then decipher the code in a short period of time? Well, perhaps the reason why this information was first planted 30 years before, and especially during an extraordinary event, is to pinpoint the beginning of a timeline, which is then acknowledged and officially recorded as a point from which other people could then become involved, each being awakened by some mystical event themselves, and then each being led to a certain amount of information, or perhaps given this information in dreams, all states of consciousness, and through other strange events and situations. It's as if these other people have then become equipped with the right kind of information knowledge, some of which can be seen to cross-correlate to unlock the code when the time is right. So if all this has been planned, then we can see why 30 years would be needed. And perhaps Jim's decision to sit on it for 30 years and for, re- for the reasons he gives was also manipulated and also part of this plan. Jim believes that this code has been placed by a time travellers from the future and that the craft he claims to have encountered during his part in the Rendlesham incident was an unmanned vehicle or drone which had been sent back in time for this very purpose, to send back information. We also have to consider the real possibility that all this has been orchestrated by some terrestrial group much closer to home, some kind of highly sophisticated covert intel operation. However, there are problems with the timing aspects of this. You see, if the codes are really part of a set of false memories injected into Jim's consciousness a few days after the incident, as people have um, suggested, uh, so as to later bring ridicule to the events that took place, then the information that had been embedded within the code would have to be something quite simple and effective towards that end, if that is all the perpetrators wanted to achieve. 
Um, however, what we find is that the information is quite complex and profound, insightful and revelatory, and it provides answers to certain mysteries, even possible di- possibly divulging secrets and certain secret that certain secret societies and arcane Easter church traditions have preserved for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so rather than being a device to merely ridicule a UFO event, the information contained within the code is actually very useful, also substantiated by several independent sources. I mean, that's, that's what I've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, per- personally, I'm taken with the fact that what emerges from the codes actually confirms my own discoveries, or that my discoveries have at least been taken seriously by whoever devised it. Again, if this has been perpetrated by some covert group or human agency, then this would mean that this code and what it reveals serves another purpose, and that is to perhaps initiate a new belief system through the revelations these codes provide, linked as they are with a paranormal event, with people believing that they must come from some divine source. But if so, then then what would this new belief system consist of, and what purpose would it serve those who have created it? As sinister as this might be, this does appear to tie in with certain excavations that have been taking place and over many decades at the pyramid field in Giza to find the so-called hidden hall of or chamber of records, which is believed to have once belonged to an ancient source civilization that was virtually wiped out in a global cataclysm. Um, As the authors um, Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince had revealed in their book The Stargate Conspiracy in 1999, the search for these hidden records has involved various intelligence agencies, politicians, multimillionaires, international best-selling authors, and some of the world's leading scientists, physicists, and industrialists. I mean, I relate all this because it is a fact that, strangely, I have personally been in contact with most of the people cited in in the book by Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince, many of them two years before the book came out. Um, and then there's the people whom I'd met around the same time, I think it was in 97, who, like me, are associated with the Rendlesham case. And again, how I became involved was not through my own intent, but because Jim Pennison had approached me after I had been recommended to him by a mutual friend. So if the the above has something to do with these codes, which is also a possible scenario of several that I've considered since finding the things I've interpreted from the seven sets of coordinates extracted from the code, then the code would, again, have had to have been part of a false memory given to Jim so that he, that he and everything else would fall in with his plan. And this could only have been implemented many years after the event and closer to the present time, because a good deal of um, the information that has been encoded is already known to me and has been since 2001, although some aspects of it has come to me and has been involving since then. But saying this, I, have, um, I still have problems with the source of these codes, being some kind of covert government-funded psyops group or agency because, again, I have experienced many synchronistic associations with people over the last 20-odd years. People are now involved with the Rendlesham incident and these codes either directly or indirectly. And, um, for example, it's a fact that in 1997, I literally bumped into UFO researcher and ex-MOD UFO desk officer Nick Pope. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll relate this. I mean, it was a summer's evening in June in '97. And I thought I'd go for a drink at my local pub. And this is the William Morris at Merton Abbey Mills, um, just on the outskirts of London. Anyway, there at the bar buying a drink is Nick Pope, who has a lady friend with him. He's waving a £10 note across the bar to get the waitress's (laughs) attention. (laughs) 
I mean, I've recognised him immediately, immediately as, I, as early that week I had been reading about him in some newspaper or magazine. And I thought it strange that perhaps one of these synchronistic moments in one's life that I had experienced a few times by then. And so I introduced myself to Nick and we had a brief chat and we exchanged numbers and meet up a few times in the same pub to talk about my own experiences. I mean, at that time, um, I wasn't a known researcher or writer, and for all Nick knew, I was perhaps some nutcase who had some strange experiences and was merely bothering him, you know, some kind of wannabe UFO investigator trying to make a name for himself. Actually, that wasn't the case. The truth is, I was passionately interested in what had happened to my brother, Paul and I, in the early 90s, and so I was intent on discussing all this with Nick, especially insights that my brother and I had arrived at while researching into these experiences. Anyway, I had the distinct impression that Nick wasn't really open to these ideas, and so after a few meetings, we kind of went our separate ways, although I'd often seen Nick walking along the street or at the craft market oh, and in the Gary, same I'm pub. Afraid, I'm afraid I have to interrupt you. We have our final break of the show here, but we'll, we will be right back on Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on CBS News Sky Radio. Stick with us. Thursday is a power-packed day here on the sky. Join us at noon for the I'm Thankful Network. At 1 p.m., it's the Dr. Pat Show. At 4 p.m., Colette Baron-Reed takes the stage for the Colette Baron-Reed Show. The Colette Baron-Reed Show, where intuition, practical spirituality, great advice, a little woo-woo fun, and fabulosity meet. Colette Baron-Reed is an internationally renowned intuitive counselor, educator, and best-selling author who helps others recognize and connect with their own intuition, potential, and purpose. Powerful motivational speaker, charismatic broadcast personality, and acclaimed performer, storyteller, and recording artist, Colette uses her extraordinary spiritual gifts to empower her clients to live a life that is awake and authentic, and to create a reality that is spiritual, deliberate, and meaningful. Call in early. The lines are hot. 248-545-7685. Instant feedback at NewSkyRadio.com. NewSkyRadio. NewSkyRadio.com. New Horizons, no boundaries. Powered by CBS, Yahoo, and Radio.com.
CBS Radio's The Sky. Back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Call now. 248 545 Soul. New SkyRadio.com. Believe. And we are back. And Gary, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to wrap it right up so that we can get to an announcement by Jim and John. Yeah, sure. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say that my seeing Nick frequently at this time isn't surprising as I learned that Nick was living only a few streets away from where I lived. But at this time, Nick was researching the Reynoldson Forest incident with writer-researcher Georgina Bruni. Uh, it's just remarkable that I should have met with Nick all those years ago now, that like him, I'm also involved in the Reynoldson case and through no design of my own, as it was Jim Penniston who approached me. Um, anyway, this would mean that myself and all these people, along with what we have come to learn and know and the events through which our lives have become strangely intertwined, would all have to have been manipulated or micromanaged and with a great deal of patience, care, skill, efficiency, and a vast amount of resources to pull it all off. It's not impossible, I suppose, and this cannot be put aside, but, but going back to the view that these codes were devised by some unknown, unworldly intelligence, we have to consider this hypothesis, because the only way all this could really be planned properly and efficiently, with everything going to plan, would be by having, one, a bird's-eye view of time from a vantage point outside time, or outside our space-time constructs, and within some kind of non-local eternal now, and, and that's really thinking outside the box. But Or two, from a point of time in the future, i.e. knowing when it would be the right time to plant information and or initiate certain people to various elements of the code and with foreseeable knowledge of when the instruments or technology needed to decipher the code would become available. How's that? Uh, I couldn't put it better myself. Oh. Thank you, Gary. That's great. Uh, let's go to John and Jim, and uh, you fellas take it away. Okay, here we go, Paul. We were hoping that Gordy would have come on earlier in the show um, to talk about the conference, but it, here's where here was where it stands for Jim and I. Um, the conference was announced in November, um, in um, end of February, early March timeframe. Well, we had a conversation with Gordy about how much longer he could continue going on. Uh, finance, you know, without the financial resources to get this taken care of. At that point in time, Gordy, um, talking to Jim and I said that we should give a three week notice, which culminated on Friday, um, on as far as if the conference could continue as far as planned. Um, the, the Gordy and I and Jim agreed to that. 
at the end of the day, Friday came, and prior to Friday, Gordy asked for an extension, which Jim and I told him that we didn't want to continue leading things on, leading people on about, you know, how much longer before if the conference was going to be held or whatever. So we told him we were standing firm to that deadline. The deadline has come and gone. So therefore, what Jim and I are planning to announce tonight is two things. One, the deadline has passed, and the as far as we're concerned, the conference is going to be canceled based on the fact that that was the agreement we had with Gordy. If he comes out and says, well, now we have the possibility to have it happen because we found financing stuff, that that's his choice. But we had a firm agreement that as of Friday, if he did not reach a certain point of ticket sales, the conference would be canceled, okay? The second announcement that, we, that we're coming out with now is this, plain and simple. Over the course of the last few months, a lot of exchanges have been going on. You've even referred to it as some hostilities in an earlier show, Paul. Yeah. What Jim and I were challenged on was that we've never put a book out. We've never put it in print for all to see and for all to judge. What Jim and I decided, based on recommendation from Peter Robbins, Larry Warren, and, and um, Robert Salas, that we haven't done that, that we should. So Jim and I have decided at this point that our best course of action to get our story out for all to see, and we can explain it from A to Z to including Gary Osborne and other people, would be to pursue a book. So at this point in time, what we've decided to do, instead of doing it at a conference or any other conference or doing anything like that, is we're going to pursue a book and put it out for all to read. Good. Okay. That, well, there we are. You wrapped it up very well. Believe it or not, we have a minute or two left. Uh, thank you, fellows, uh, for you know announcing that on the show. And uh, certainly, Gary, uh, tell us about your book and uh, oh. where people can get it. Oh, The Geezer Prophecy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's on Amazon. Um, it's by Scott Crichton and I. Uh, it's a foreword by Graham Hancock. Okay. Well. Okay. Who, yeah, uh, who endorses, yeah, yeah. yeah, who endorses the book and uh, everything in it. Um it's just, uh, I mean, I'm not only here to plug the book, uh, but I must say that uh, when looking at these codes, a lot of what I saw um, reflects some of the information in that book, which is okay. a very strange thing in how I became involved, really. Uh, understandable, yeah. Uh, John and Jim, what's, what, uh, what, what sort of timeline are you looking at for your book? Um, as far as the book goes, Paul, as of now, we're going to start on Monday exploring exactly you know, getting a publish and everything. And as you know, publishing a book, the publishers will basically dictate that. So, Well, it's a changing industry now. You may have more control than you think you will. Speaking right. as a, you know, someone who's... Right, but as of now, what we're going to do is Monday morning, we're going to start, you know, looking for a publisher. And once we, we obtain a publisher, that obviously then we probably can have more of an update on that. Okay, very good. Well, fellas, it's been a great show. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, we'll be talking you. to you all off the air. Thank you, Paul. Okay, very good. Thanks. Okay, thank you too, Gary. All right. Uh, Ben and I are about to begin a series of presentations in informal, I suppose you might call them town hall meetings in areas where we suspect that unusually widespread paranormal activity is occurring. Uh, We have reasons to believe that there are a number of those areas. The first of these will be at the Kellogg Hubbard Library in Montpelier, Vermont, on Saturday, May 5th, 10.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., if you live in northern New England, nearby Quebec or New York State, come and meet us. Uh, people from the local area, have your stories ready. Uh, we are investigating a case in that area, which is one of the reasons why we're, we're starting there. And we will be available as much as we can for private consultation. Okay. 
I think we've got another minute left here, Ben. Okay, now uh, again, check us out, Barnes & Noble uh, e-reader, the Nook e-reader, and Kindle as well, uh, with my four books, uh, my four most recent books at least, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, Rhode Island, a genial history, if you're interested in history, and Turning Home, God, Ghosts, and Human Destiny. And check us out, too, at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website, for all sorts of information. So many thanks to our producer, Will Kosnick, and we'll see you next Sunday, March 18th, when uh, we will host an open-line show to answer your questions about all areas of the paranormal. In the meantime, tune into our Boston Providence Drive Time Show on WON 1240 AM and ONWorldwide.com at 6 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday. And don't forget, you can always get free podcasts of all our shows and nearly 400 shows now, along with show schedules and guest information at www.behindtheparanormal.com. You were going to say schedules. You're hanging around too many Brits. (sighs) We leave you with a thought from the 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson. Quote, to live is so startling that it leaves little time for anything else. Unquote. So many thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we will see you next time.